Well, speaking of moms, my mommy taught me to say sorry. Whenever I did something wrong, she taught me to apologize. Now, I haven't done anything wrong that I know of, but I'm still going to start my sermon with an apology. Now, I know that that breaks one of the unwritten rules of public speaking. Never start with an apology. It just starts you off on the wrong foot. So you're probably wondering, okay, so why is he going to start with sorry? I, I feel like I need to say sorry because today we're in week three of our series in Nehemiah. And if you're part of the Riverwood family, you know that we are doing a capital campaign. We are seeking to raise the funds needed for a down payment so that we can buy this building that we've been leasing the last three years. And today's the day that I'm going to now ask you to begin praying about what you are to give. So in week one, week two, if you've been here and been paying attention, you've noticed we haven't asked for any money. But today's the day we say, would you begin to pray about what you can give cheerfully, willfully, and sacrificially? And then two things hit me. First, hope overflow was coming today. I was a music major. I would have totally jumped into something like hope overflow if we'd had that at my college. And I can only imagine, I show up at a church, and I hear the pastor's going to ask for money. I would cringe inside. And so, Hope Overflow, thank you. That was great. I'm looking forward to the last couple of songs, and I'm sorry. <laughs> then the second thing that hit me, it's Mother's Day. Like all around the globe, there are pastors preaching nice, warm, fuzzy sermons about the glories and value of motherhood. And instead, I'm going to be talking about money. So if you came today for one of those nice, you know, encouraging sermons, I'm sorry. <laughs> but then, as I got to thinking about it, you know, maybe I shouldn't be all that sorry. Because you see, what I want for you isn't that you just like give Riverwood a lot of money. Really, my hope for you is that you would know Jesus and follow him. And that means you follow him in every single area of life. And oftentimes the last area so many people follow Jesus in is with their wallet. They'll give some time They'll give some of their energy. They may even give some wisdom. They can know the Bible all sorts of ways. But to let God into your bank account? And so maybe today, God intentionally wanted you here for this. That today is actually going to be encouraging. Today is going to help you in your faith. And what I hear, hope you hear is that this is not about trying to just get a lot of money for Riverwood this is about you giving to God. And if it's to Riverwood, great. We believe we are on a very important mission. But if it needs to be given somewhere else, do so. Because I think God wants to use you to help change the world. And today might help you make, get a little closer to that. So if you brought a Bible, please open it up to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. And if you guys would, please raise the light so people can see their Bibles. Um. As we get ready, uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We are going to put the scripture up on the screen so you can uh, read right along with us. Um, if you're online, there's a Bible tab over there that you can use. Um, also, if you have a Bible on your phone, you totally feel free to pull that out and use that. We are fine with digital Bibles at Riverwood. And if you want to go old school and have a paper Bible like I like to use, we have uh, two different translations back on our uh, resource table. We'd love to just give one of those Bibles to you. Uh, all right? So we want you to have a Bible. Uh, we study the scriptures every 
every single Sunday, we open this up together, but we also want you to have a Bible in hand because we think it's not just enough to read it on Sundays. We want you reading it on Monday and Tuesday and every day. We believe that by reading the scriptures, you begin to understand God's heart for you and for the world. We believe God has us on a mission to help change the world one life at a time. We want to see people find Jesus and follow him. And, and to follow him means to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And so by reading the scriptures and understanding what it teaches us helps you just let God into your life more and more to help you become more and more like Christ. So today we're going to be in Nehemiah 3. So before we read, uh, let's pray together and then uh, I kind of need to set the chapter up. So Heavenly Father, uh, we have uh, prayed for our morning. We have prayed for mothers. We have prayed for these families and their kids. But now we pray for this time. Lord, I, I, I don't want this just to be about what I want to say. I, I want this to be about what you would have me say. And so, God, I, I submit myself to you today. But also, Lord, I, I pray for those that are listening. Anytime we start talking about money and giving, it, it can get awkward. It, it so often feels like a church is trying to get something from us. So, God, I pray that today you would help us to see that there's something you want for us, that this is more about you, more about what you call us to, and so, Lord, I pray you'd help us to hear correctly as I seek to speak correctly. So, God, this time is yours. Do with it what you want to. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. All right, we're going to read the first eight verses of Nehemiah 3. But before we do, I just want to warn you, it's boring, okay? Now, I'm probably going to trip over some of these names and places, all right? So have some grace with me. I have practiced these, but I don't guarantee I'm going to say it all, all correctly, but also, I just, I just want to acknowledge, like, if you're struggling with insomnia, this is the kind of passage that you pull out to read. And, I mean, you'll be out by, like, verse 16, all right? Why would Nehemiah do this? Because, I mean, if you've been with us in the series, Nehemiah 1 started off great. We get to meet Nehemiah, and we, the tension is all set up. He finds out that the walls of Jerusalem have been, are still in rubble from after the Babylonians 100 years prior had come in and invaded and it, it's embarrassing to him because oftentimes people thought a god was over a geographical reason. So for the key city of, the, of Israel to have its walls torn down means that God's a weak god. It also meant that the people living there were unprotected. So this just became a deep burden to Nehemiah, and he felt God saying, I'm going to use you to go rebuild the walls. So then last week in chapter 2, we saw Nehemiah have an opportunity to present his plan to the king. The king sensed something going on with Nehemiah, asks him. Nehemiah takes a risk, shares with the king, and the king is in favor of the idea and is sending Nehemiah. So we see Nehemiah get to Jerusalem. He's got the resources he's needed. He takes some time to put together a plan, and we, we ended our time with him presenting the plan to the people. So now it's time to build. But he starts off with a list of names. I mean, if this were a Netflix series, we've got a great pilot episode. The story really moves along in chapter two. And then episode three is suddenly like rolling the credits. Like, why would he interrupt everything with something so boring? Because he's doing something very, very important. And I want to draw that out. So if you would, join me at verse one of chapter three. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. 
They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them repaired Mel- Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Maranothite, the, and the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Okay, we'll stop there. I think you get the idea. In fact, this goes all the way through the whole entire chapter. There isn't even a little like concluding sentence at the end. I mean, it it goes the whole way through. 32 verses of nothing but names and places of what they did. Why is Nehemiah doing this? Back in, uh, well, I, I can't even say back in Nehemiah's day. Throughout centuries, Throughout uh, cultures, even in our modern day culture, there are people who feel that they are too good, too important, too dignified to do the little things. They're, They're too important to dig in the dirt, to carry the box, to sit and listen to someone's problem. They're too dignified to solely themselves with these sort of things. And it was no different in Nehemiah's day. Did you hear it there in verse 5? says, and next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. And, and, and so there were even these nobles who thought they were way too good to be involved with the repairing of this wall. But if you read through the entire section of chapter 3, you will discover they are the only ones. As you begin to look at who was involved you start discovering it's a wide range of people. Just in the eight verses we read, you notice in verse 1, the high priest, probably the most prominent man in the culture outside of now Nehemiah, who's the governor, he he actually gets involved. And it says he gets all of the priests, his brothers, to do it. So you've got the priests involved. Down in verse 8, you see a, a, um, a guy, Uziel, He's described as a goldsmith. Also there in verse 8, you see Hananiah. He's a perfumer, right? He's a merchant. If you keep going, you'd start discovering these are farmers. These are soldiers. These are the rich. These are the poor. This is everyone outside of a handful of nobles. Any of you ever heard of the 80-20 rule? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. If you've ever been involved in like a PTA board, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or maybe a a student organization feels like there's just a handful who seem to do all the work. Even in churches, this happens. Uh, Some of you know that I'm a member of the Waverly Exchange Club. Uh, The Exchange Club is a a service organization, kind of like Kiwanis, Lions, Rotary, all of which have clubs here in Waverly. Uh, The reason I'm part of the Exchange Club is their, their national project, their mission is to eliminate child abuse. Every year, we raise over $25,000 that we donate to various regional organizations that kind of partner up with that idea of of eliminating child abuse. 
our group is very, very healthy. We have a great reputation in town. And I think I know why. Because we do not operate on the 80-20 rule. We operate more on the 80-80 rule. 80% of the work being done by 80% of the people. In fact, I could even maybe argue that it's 100% of the work done by 100% of the people. We have so many different fundraisers. We have so many different like, uh, committees. We give a lot of awards as an organization. And yet, to make it all happen, different people take different areas. And it works. That's what you see happening here in Nehemiah 3. It isn't just 20% the important people or the carpenters or the masons doing all the work. You see a wide range of people doing it. It took everybody. Now, knowing it took everybody doesn't mean that they all did the same amount of work. As you read through there, you start discovering some people built towers, some people focused on gates, some people were repairing walls, and you see some portions where he uses the word built. He, they built this section. Others say they repaired this section. That makes me think that there may be in some areas where the Babylonians had completely caved in the walls like there was nothing there. They're starting from scratch. But there's other parts where it says they repaired. I, I envision like there's still some stone there. There's stuff that you can work with, and they were using that to begin to build the walls. Also, if you look at a map of Jerusalem, I, pr I probably should have brought one. I apologize that I didn't. It it's not just a nice flat plain. Like, it's kind of built on a hill. And so some people had to work around, like, sloping areas, or, you know, probably had to, like, get the ground ready in order to build. Everyone was involved, but the work wasn't exactly the same. We see this concept lived out in life. And we even see it in things like capital campaigns. This is why oftentimes you, when, when a college or a nonprofit or even churches are seeking to raise money, they often use something like a giving pyramid. You guys know what a giving pyramid is? When, when I was a kid, I, I thought that, uh, like that giving pyramid, you, you have the, the biggest amount at the top and, and it works its way down to, to lower gift amounts. I thought as a kid and as a teenager, the only gifts that really mattered were at the top. Because if you ever heard on the news of someone donating something, all you heard was the big gift. I remember years ago hearing about a janitor, an elementary school janitor, who had lived so simply, he had saved over a million dollars and donated it at his retirement to the elementary that he had worked at. Made headline news because it was a million dollar gift. You walk onto any college campus, even at Warburg, there are buildings named after the people who gave these huge gifts. So it's understandable why, as a kid and a teenager, I thought the only gifts that really mattered were the big ones. But when Leanne and I felt God calling us to serve as missionaries in Venezuela, and then again to help start a new church, we had to fundraise. And I quickly caught on that it wasn't just the big gifts that mattered, that every gift mattered. Last fall, during our How to Give uh, uh, sermon series, I shared the story of Jimmy. Jimmy was uh, infamous in my hometown for his poverty. Well, Leanne and I had the opportunity to share about God calling us to Venezuela at one of the local churches in my hometown, and Jimmy happened to be there. And after hearing us share what God was calling us to, Jimmy decided to not just join our prayer team, he wanted to financially support us. And he supported us for one dollar a month. And as I shared last fall, that $1 meant more to me than some of the 20s and 50s that we got. 
Because some of the people that supported us at $20 a month weren't going to miss it a bit. But for Jimmy, that $1 a month was the equivalent for some of you of $100 a month or even $1,000 a month. And yet he gave it joyfully and cheerfully. I began to understand then that every gift matters, that it all counts, that it's all needed. And so knowing this, I started wondering, well, what would a giving pyramid then look like for Riverwood? We, we didn't put one together. And so I just thought, you know what? Let's just see what it would look like. So this is merely for illustrative purposes. This is not like an official thing. We don't have a capital campaign consultant. I haven't run this by the elders, okay? This is just for our purposes. But this is what something could look like, all right? In order for us to raise the $50,000 needed, it'd be one person giving a gift of 10000 two people giving gifts of 5000 and then four and eight and 16. So 31 different donations at these amounts would get us the $50,000. This is what it could look like. And what you see is it would take everyone. But the point isn't, okay, we just got to get this. The, the point is, where would you fall? What of those gifts would be sacrificial, generous, and willing. Last fall, we studied 2 Corinthians 9. I wanted to draw back out uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, it says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This echoes what we saw, uh, what, 10 days ago in our Riverwood News and Notes email as we've been studying uh, Exodus 25 there in our email. We, we saw that what God wants is for us to be willing givers. He doesn't coerce us into this because giving is worship and he's not forcing us into it. He is so worthy of our worship, we should want to come to him joyfully and cheerfully. And that includes in our giving. We need to be generous. And so you see there that he wants us to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, so give it willingly, and we are to give it cheerfully. But notice in verse 6, we are to give it bountifully, generously, even the word sacrificially. So then if you think back to that giving pyramid, what would be sacrificial for you? If, if, if it's that 600 level, then do it. Praise God. That's great because every gift is needed. But some of you, you wouldn't even notice a one-time donation of $600. So maybe you're at that $2,500 level or the $5,000 level. Maybe some of you, you need to be at that $10,000. And I'm even going to say, some of you, you shouldn't even stop at the ten. If for you, you could joyfully and willingly sacrifice more than that, then go for it. With that said, I don't want you to give today. Now, if you really, 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 really want to give, okay, I can't force you not to. But, but I, I don't want you to give today for, for several reasons. Number one, when we showed that giving pyramid, again, not official, you may have seen an amount, and in your head, you're like, I could do that. Maybe that is God-inspired. Maybe that is what you should do. But the chances are, 
When you saw an amount, yeah, I could do that. That's what you would be comfortable with. Meaning, it wouldn't actually be generous. It wouldn't be bountiful. It wouldn't be sacrificial. It would be way too comfortable. So in other words, you need some time to pray. God, is this the amount you want me to give? If it is, thank you. Awesome. Fantastic. But maybe he wants to stretch you. Maybe he wants to do something more. Maybe he's even saying, I want you to give that portion to Riverwood, but I want you to give more to this other organization, to this missionary, to, to this thing. And it's going to stretch you. So you need some time to just pray. Others of you, you saw that pyramid, and a number jumped out at you, but that number scared you. Yeah, that would be sacrificial, but boy, I don't know that I could give that cheerfully or willingly. So what you need is some time for your heart to catch up with your head. You, you need to, some time for these things to get in sync. You need to, to submit this in prayer. God, is that really what you want me to give? Others of you, you want to give willingly. You want to give cheerfully. You want to give sacrificially. But as you look at your bank account, you're like, yeah, but there's nothing there to give. I want to be a part of this, but I have nothing. That is why we want you to just take some time. We're going to be done talking about this capital campaign at the end of this month. However, if you picked up one of our brochures or you saw the Building Lives page on our website, you know that we're asking you to have these funds in by July 3rd. This gives you some time to think outside the box, to get creative. Some of you, you, you may need to go and sell something. Maybe you have a, a vehicle that's just sitting there and you're, you're going to sell it. So, some of you may want to sell stock some of you may, maybe you got a collection that you're not going to do anything with and you could sell it on eBay and you give out of that. Uh, some of you, you may say, you know what? I've got a skill, a talent. I could use that to maybe earn some money or I, I could take it on a side gig. I could do a little part-time job for two months and I will give that money instead. Maybe you just need some time to give something up. You're giving a lot to buy that coffee every day. Or those subscriptions sure are adding up and taking a lot. Maybe you could give some of these things up and what you would have spent on those things begin to save and use that to give. That's why I don't want you to give today. I want you to take some time to think and to pray. I believe in order for this to happen, it's going to take all of us. God has not blessed Riverwood with a secret millionaire. For us to make it this far, it's taken all of us. Everyday, normal folks, middle class, sacrificing and working together to make this church happen. And I don't think God's going to make it different in this capital campaign. I think he's going to use all of us. Now, if you're a first-time guest, I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to pressure you into giving. Right? I want you to first know who Jesus is and second decide if this is a church that you would want to be a part of. But if you're part of the Riverwood family... I'm asking you to prayerfully consider what part do you need to play? What can you give? What should you give cheerfully, willingly, and sacrificially? Now, in Nehemiah 3, if you read through the entire chapter, you will not see Nehemiah once say, and I and my group built this section. Which might lead you to erroneously believe that he was just a typical government official supervisor walking in and telling everyone else what to do, but he was like those nobles and he didn't stoop and dirty his hands. Actually, the opposite is true. 
Nehemiah was very involved. In fact, here's how involved he was. First, in Nehemiah 5, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, Nehemiah 5.16, he admits he worked on the wall. He says, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. In other words, we didn't acquire wealth for ourselves. We acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. You, you realize, he's saying, my servants weren't there to serve me. Like the servants that the king sent with me from Persia, I had them work on the wall. Like we all got involved. He was fully invested. But that's not all he did. We're going to see next week in chapter 4 some of the opposition that comes against the work. It's going to require them to take up swords. We see Nehemiah carrying a sword to help protect the people as they worked. In chapter 5, we discover that as governor, Nehemiah had a right to the king's allowance of food. And yet he didn't accept it for himself and his entourage. He shared it with others. In fact, he had a right to a certain amount of the taxes and he suspended the taxes so as not to be a burden on the people. Nehemiah was a phenomenal leader, and he was fully invested. He gave everything to this project. Now, because I've studied Nehemiah previously, I knew this about the story. And I thought if, if we're kind of using this to help guide us through this capital campaign, to see the truths that God put there to help us make decisions in what we do, I knew this meant that our leadership had to lead the way, like Nehemiah. So back in March, I talked with our elders and said, guys, I think we need to lead the way. And they're like, yep, we're, we're fully on board. And we decided to invite our Sunday team to be a part of it as well. So the elders and Sunday team took all of March to pray. We were supposed to talk with our spouses. We were supposed to figure out what do we feel God calling us to give as a part of this. And then in April, we then shared, here's what we feel God calling me to give, or we just went ahead and gave it. And I'm pleased to report today, because I just found this out this week, that our leadership has voted to give, pop it up there for me, $21,373.26. That's just from our leadership. I want you to know that we are fully invested. We are all in on this. This is why I find myself every Wednesday after an elder team meeting just so encouraged. Because these guys are invested they love you. They want to shepherd you. They want to lead you. And they want this church to be who God calls it to be. And also, the Sunday team, we meet once a month. Every time we get done, I am so encouraged to have such teammates who want this mission to continue to go forward. And you see this investment in their generosity. They've led the way for us. They're not asking you to do something that they themselves have not already done. They are giving sacrificially, willingly, and cheerfully. But there have been a handful of people who've been giving a little bit into our building fund. There's been a little bit of money that's trickled in in 2022, some given back in 2021. And so before we've even asked you to give directly to this, you need to know that we already have $27,284.07, which means before we've even asked you to give, we're already over 50%. Never in my wildest dreams did I think this was possible. Now, some people may say, well, Aaron, you shouldn't be sharing that. Other people are going to see that and go, oh, they're almost there. They're fine. They don't need my money. 
you know what? This is God's. If God doesn't get us to the 50,000, 50, I'll be honest, I don't know what we'll do. But if we get there, praise God. The thing is, I want you to be a part of it. If you're part of the Riverwood family, I want you to invest in this because our goal and dream is to have the home base where not only on Sundays we can invest in you, but a place where other ministry takes place and a place from where we can send you to go be that blessing into the world. And I want you to get the joy of being a part of that. I don't care at what level. I don't care what part of the wall you get to build. I just want you to get to be a part so that if God raises the 50,000 or more, when it's all said and done, we look at it and we say, wow. And not, it, our, our prayer is not, wow, look what we have done. It's saying, look at what God has done. And so that is why I invite you to be a part of this. Because I want you to get to celebrate that with us by knowing God used you in this. But there's one more thing that I feel that I need to share. You see, we as a church are not trying to help you live like Nehemiah lived or love like Nehemiah loved. We want you to follow Jesus. And what we see in Nehemiah, as great of a leader as he was, as invested as he was, he still pales in comparison to Jesus. Jesus Christ willingly, cheerfully, and sacrificially left his throne in heaven, set aside his glories and rights as God to come down to earth and take on human flesh. But even that wasn't enough. Philippians 2 tells us that in his humanity, he made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. He willingly sacrificed himself for us. And that's what Riverwood is all about. If you were with us in week one, you may remember we talked about how this story is really not about walls. Nehemiah's passion was for the protection of the people and the fame of God. It's the same here. This is not about a building. This is about people. God has us on a mission to invite those who feel spiritually disconnected from God to find him and follow him through Jesus Christ. And then we want to help those people become more and more like Jesus because we believe our broken world needs people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. That is why I invite you to be a part, no matter what level. Because really, when God asks us to be generous, he's not asking us to do something that he himself has not already done. Because Jesus paid it all. And so in an act of worship, may we give him all of ourselves. I can't think of a better way to honor Christ than to go to communion. And so I'll invite Hope Overflow to come up as we prepare to go to the uh, communion table. I just want to say, if you are a first-time guest and you are a follower of Jesus, we at Riverwood celebrate what would be known as open communion. We believe that the communion elements point us back to the story of Jesus. Jesus allowed his body to be ripped to shreds, and that's why we take that bread. He allowed his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins, and that is why we drink that cup. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you have put your faith into the story, we would love for you to participate with us. So at any time during this song, as Hope Overflow leads us, you can get up from where you're at and go to the communion elements. Ours is a self-contained uh, little container. All you need to do is push that little tab down to break it, and then it should be able to peel back the bread and then peel back the cup. You may partake of that at any time. If you're not a follower of Jesus, though, yet, 
I just want you to know I'm glad you're here. And really, I don't want your money. I want you to know Jesus. And so if you're not sure yet about this whole Jesus story, if you think it's a little crazy, this idea of, of God becoming human and going and dying on the cross in our place, then I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully not go to these elements. Because to take these elements is to say that this story is my story. You're taking it into yourself. And if you're not so sure, th then don't do it. Instead, take the time during the song to pray. Ask God, is it true? Is this crazy story of God the Son taking on human flesh and living a perfect life but going and dying in a sinner's place, is this story true? And if it is, would you take this time to give your life to him because Jesus gave his life for you. So wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, may this next song encourage you to give you hope, remind you of God's love for you as we come to the communion table and remember the generous, willing sacrifice of Christ. Let us do this now in remembrance of him.
Father, would you help us to run to you? We'd run to you with everything. We'd run to you with complete abandon because of who you are. God, for those that are struggling to trust you, to trust you because of this broken relationship, to trust you uh, uh, with their finances, to trust you with their job, to to trust you with the situation they're, they're struggling with, I pray that they would run to you and they would see that you are trustworthy, that, that you are reliable. That even when uh, in the short term it seems that you are not there, that they can see that throughout history, throughout all of time, you have been there for people and you'll be there for them. Thank you, God, for the love that you displayed through Jesus Christ, the one who so generously gave all of himself so that we could have all of you. And so help us, Father, to continue to give all of ourselves to you, every single part. So, Father, thank you for this morning, this chance to worship and help us to continue to surrender ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.